Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. This is Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports. Streaming through the Seattle Sports app. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Here we go now. All right, joining us now on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline, it is Larry Stone, writer for the Seattle Times. Um, Larry, are you currently in Ryan Divish's truck on your way to the game, or did you manage to find a restaurant to call us from? I, yeah, we, I just exited the truck, and I'm in the parking lot. <laughs> just for you, Stacey and Bump. We I'm appreciate it. my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> we won't take up much of your time. We'll start, in fact, with uh, one of the best news items we got from the weekend, which was Jared Kelnick, two home runs in that uh, in that game uh, against, I think, the Angels for that one. Um, or, excuse me, the Royals. Uh, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> Ultimately, none right, of these games yeah. matter. But it was great news to hear that from, from Kelnick. How has he looked at the plate? I mean, he's looked good. Uh, I tried to kind of caution in my story today in writing about it that it's two games into spring and he's looked good before. Uh, but, you know, he, he made a lot of swing changes in the off season, and to get some positive reinforcement right away is a, is a great sign for him, uh, you know, just for confidence. He's a guy I've always thought really needs a fast start to kind of get out of his own head and start questioning things. And so I think it's a good sign in that way. And the, and the, the swing changes, I mean, he looked really different and more comfortable and balanced, I thought, at the plate. So all that bodes well. But, uh, you know, he's he's got to show it through the course of the spring and bring it into the season, but uh, a really good sign. Hey, Larry, as um, athletes, we have internal clocks. I know as a receiver, i got to get off the line <laughs> of scrimmage at a certain time or the time is going to be off. Was your internal clock messed up with a game that took two hours and 25 minutes as a guy <laughs> who follows the game? Yeah, well, not only that. But it was a game that had 15 runs and 25 hits combined in that game. So, I mean, I've covered a lot of spring trainings, and that very game would have been three hours and 15 minutes, uh, you know, in previous years, and it was 2:25. So, yeah, your your point's a, a good one. It's a it's a whole different mindset watching the game. It really goes crisply. You know, a lot of people are don't seem to like it, but I think I, I think. It's because it's just so different. I, you yeah. know, they did it in the minor leagues. Everybody learned to to uh, adjust to it and eventually to like it. Everyone I talked to who has experienced it in the minor leagues says it's the best thing that that ever happened. And and I think it's going to end up being positive. I don't think. And once the regular season starts, the games aren't going to be two twenty. You know, I, I suspect that they'll be around two forty five. Uh, and you know, that's only fifteen twenty minutes less than what the average game was in past years. So uh, I think it's going to, I think it's going to be a positive thing for baseball. I really do. Uh, We saw Teoscar Hernandez uh, as a scratch. Uh, Scott service didn't seem too concerned about um, Hernandez's sore back. Have you heard any update on, on him? Yeah. Just, he was out there doing uh, outfield stuff and throwing. So uh, I think they're just being super cautious with him. I don't think that's anything, Mm -hmm. anything at all to worry about. He should be back in the lineup uh, midweek, I think. Hey, um, Stacy and I were just talking about who is the most important piece. And I think we both said, look, you can go like to four to six guys. I think she settled on Luis Castillo and I settled on JP because of all the people they passed up to keep him there. If you can look at someone besides Julio and say, all right, this guy needs to perform for this team to have the type of success that we want, who would you pick? Well, to be honest, I think we've already talked about him. Is Jared Kelnick. Uh, just because, you know, he's 
the potential is so great for him. Just you know, every a lot of people think they they could use one more bat, could have acquired one more bat in the off season. If Kelnick is the Kelnick who just three years ago, two years ago was a top five prospect in baseball. If, if he's that kind of guy or even close to it, suddenly the whole lineup looks a lot better. So to me, I felt coming into camp that he that he was the most important guy. But uh, you know, just to go different i think robbie ray is another one mm-hmm. uh it, the it, uh, you know i think he had a better year than most people think last year there was a stretch a long stretch where he was kind of unhittable and then he just because he had that struggle in the postseason and couldn't get the the astros hitters out i think a lot of people viewed it as kind of a disappointing year but um it just has the potential to be a really good starting rotation. And if he could get back to anything close to the Cy Young form, it'll be even better. I think, too, you know, looking at, um, you know, some of the younger pitchers, it. I was so impressed with what both uh, Kirby and Gilbert were able to do, and yet it feels like there's still room for them to take another step forward. Larry, I feel like what I've heard most often is like, hey, Kirby has the potential to be like number two. I mean, is there that same kind of potential for, for all these young guys, for, for Logan as well? I think there is, yeah. Especially Kirby. I think he yeah. he really has. He just he looks like a, a guy who could be a top of the rotation guy. They think they have some other ones brewing in the minor leagues, and uh, you know Hancock, uh, uh, Miller in particular, Dollard. So they got some guys coming up. That the concern with both Kirby and Gilbert is that at a very young age they really stepped up their innings count last year, and uh, in 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 important games down the stretch and you just hope that there's not a a, a backlash you know health wise this year you know coming in the last year the Mariners were so lucky in that they didn't really have a single starting pitching injury and that's hard to do or uh, in any season so you know the, a lot of people I think they're going to slow play both those guys in spring training they you know, they skipped their first turn I don't think they, they, they're going to take up take great care in bringing them along, trying to nurse them through this season uh, after after upping their innings so much last year. You know, every year teams change a little bit or a lot if you're losing a bunch of games. And this time last year, Murphy was the guy behind the plate. And um, Kyle yeah. was, was backing him up. And now we've seen a role reversal. What does that do to the, the mental of a guy like Murphy? Do you think he has embraced this role, especially with the success that he saw Kyle have this year or last year? I think I think he has. I mean, he's, uh, I don't know if you talked to Shannon, but she noticed that he's, he's walking around with a smile on his face. Like he's, he's just happy to be there after missing. He put, he had 14 at bats last year. I think, you know, he was hurt almost the entire season. He had to miss the playoffs. He was there as a spectator, but not as a participant. So, you know, I think he understands that the order of things has changed and Cal stopped established himself as the clear number one uh, catcher. But, um, I think he's embracing the role, and, and and you know things happen during the season. He'll get his playing time. He could even get some DH time uh, if he hits. I think I think they'll be uh, they they don't want to play Cal, you know, 150, 100, yeah. 150 games. So so there'll be time for Murphy, and uh, you know for him it's just just staying healthy after you know a pretty serious injury last year. 
Uh, we have plenty of time, and we will get back to some of the players, but you wrote about another really important piece of this team, and that is the manager. It was a column that published over mm-hmm. the weekend on Seattle Times, and it's Scott Service is no longer a mystery after earning respect of players <laughs> and fans. Now, we both talked about uh, how Scott's been a snub for manager of the year, and, and that's not necessarily the angle I wanted to take. Rather, Larry, I was just curious about uh, what prompted the column, what you learned from the column, and, and if um, mm-hmm. it just kind of be like your takeaways overall about service and what he's done so far yeah well what what prompted it stacy is that i just started thinking this is his eighth year Mm -hmm. and it just you know i I remember when he came in as a guy that had no managerial experience on the minor leagues not the major leagues and you know a lot of eyebrows raised and here he is eighth uh year and i started looking at the seniority in baseball see how many other managers had been with their current team that long and there's only three above him he was number three behind you know, Cleveland, uh, Terry Fancona in Cleveland and uh, Craig Council in Milwaukee and Kevin Cash in Tampa Bay. And then there's Scott. Uh, so I, I just wanted to delve into that question about how he's changed as a manager, you know, uh, the, the trajectory of his career. Once you get a playoff berth under your belt and, a play, and winning a playoff series like they did in Toronto last year, I think it changes your stature and the way you're looked at by by uh, peers and by the team that you're managing because you have some, you know, you have those credentials all of a sudden. So that's what, that that's what prompted the column. And that's what uh, I tried to get into. Random question. How is Pete's fish and chips? And would you suggest <laughs> it to anybody who's visiting the area? <laughs> all right. I, I have a. I'm sitting way off to the side here, but I have a feeling that Mr. Divish has been tweeting. <laughs> he <something>. did <laughs> post a picture of you sitting on the curb. Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm busted. Uh, well, I, I've been going to this place. You, you don't. You don't think of fish and chips in the Phoenix, in Greater Phoenix, you know? But uh, I've been going to this place for literally 37 years. This is my 37th spring, and I discovered it my my first year when I was covering the, the A's and Giants, and I happened to stay in a hotel that was next. They have several of them around the valley. So I, I went there because it was right next door to my hotel, and then I, I liked it. So I, I make one trip a year. This is our one trip. <laughs> I love it. I just saw that. Tradition. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Um, hey, so there's uh, really only so much we can take away from spring training. But Larry, to help us and listeners parse out what matters and what doesn't, what do you as a reporter like add weight to during Cactus League play? And what do you kind of ignore? Well, I ignore statistics first of all mm-hmm. and i ignore i ignore early season pitching performances i remember when jamie morier was in his heyday and then you know he was getting to be 38 40 42 45 <laughs> he would get shelled uh early in spring and everyone would panic and yeah. say that jamie was jamie was done and then opening day he'd throw seven shutout innings so uh you know you just have to watch for uh, you you watch for like the last 2 weeks when guys start when when opponents start throwing curveballs and uh, you know the opposing pitchers it's, you stop facing the minor league guys and you start facing the the guys who are actually going to be there uh kind of ignore the the stuff against you know some non-roster single a pitcher you you know that, that if if a guy gets a long home run off him, it might not be indicative that you know he's arrived as a hitter. Yeah. So uh, that 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 I try to take everything in kind of a grain with a grain of sand. 
Yeah, I, I feel you. I think the veterans probably take it that way, too, right? They're working on some things. They're trying some things out. But then there are guys, these youngsters, who are battling, right, mm-hmm. to position themselves in the farm system and make a name for themselves. Can you feel the difference between, say, a Julio Rodriguez, who knows he'll be in center field, um, mm. to a guy like a Harry Ford, who's just trying to make a name yeah. for himself, or Marlo, who's trying to establish himself? Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. Um yeah, yeah, everyone's at different stages of their career. I mean, look, like Cal Raleigh came to camp last year battling for a spot on the roster, and so it's a whole different mindset and approach than this year. I mean, this is the fourth game of the year, and he hasn't even been in the lineup yet. So they don't, they know he's going to catch a lot of games, and they don't want to, you know, there's no need for him to be out there in late February when you got to save his knees and all that for the long haul. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's interesting to see guys as they transition in their career and the, yeah, the young guys trying to make the team come out with their hair on fire yeah. and the veterans, the veterans, as they get established more and more, you know, they don't even, uh, they don't care about results at all in spring training because they, they're not trying to make the team results do matter if you're trying to make the team, but if you've established yourself, they don't. Hey, uh, we haven't seen every arm yet, right? We're only three games in, so there's still plenty to see. But, uh, you know, when you think about the bullpen and think about these relievers, um, I always think of like Paul Sewald is a stalwart. And obviously Andres Munoz is is one of their very, very best arms and just electric stuff. But is there someone else in the bullpen that has a chance to really solidify his role there this year? Well, the guy who stood out, I mean, he won't make the opening day roster probably, is Prelander Baroa. Ryan wrote about him the other day, a guy they picked up from San Francisco last year and for Donovan Walton, but he's got an electric arm, and he's going to be in their bullpen probably before the year is out. Uh, and, you know, Matt Brash, is uh, he's got as good stuff as anyone in the league. I mean, I think he'll emerge this year as a real late-inning leverage guy uh, that will, I mean, between Munoz and Brash, I mean that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, velocity and yeah. stuff coming out of the bullpen late in the games, and that's that's how you win. You know that's how you win in this league is with those kind of. I mean the Astros have shown that, and other teams when you got that depth with uh, high leverage arms, you know that 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 leads to that leads to victories. Larry, you say year thirty seven going to spring training. So when you yes, go sir. to these games, are you press box? You sit in the crowds or a spot you like to sit? <laughs> Fill me in. What's this like? Well, uh, first of all, that just means I'm old. That's all that means. <laughs> but uh, uh, this has been uh, I, 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 recency bias, but this has been like the worst weather I think I can ever remember here. It's been chilly every single day. So usually I like to go sit out and you know, take a couple innings and sit out in the stands and just soak in the sun. Or if I have you know maybe a friend there, sit with them because it's a little more relaxed in spring training. But this this year it hasn't been worth it because it's been too chilly to do that. But yeah, no, I sit in the press box uh, and uh, just try and soak in as much as I can and look at different people. It's the you know you're usually a lot of times I'm writing. I'll have done an interview in the morning and write. The, the column while the game's going on because uh, because it's the, each pitch is not crucial like it is in the regular season. So uh, I love spring training; it's my favorite. 
time of the year and my favorite assignment of the year. You guys can read some of those assignments that uh, that Larry is covering on seattletimes.com. He's got uh, one on Scott Service that published over the weekend, but keep an eye out for, for all of his stuff and, and Ryan's work coming out from Peoria. Great stuff. And Larry, we've enjoyed this interview. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, listen to us ask you questions from a parking lot. We <laughs> Thanks, appreciate Larry. it. Pete's Fish and <laughs> Chips, pleasure. Larry. Enjoy yeah, your no, lunch, they, Larry. They're... They got my name on him. I'm going right now. All right. Thanks. Bye. This hour of Bump and Stacey is brought to you by Advanced Hair Restoration. Let's get to Four Down Territory. This is Four Down Territory. Going inside the game with former Seahawks and Coug wide receiver Michael Bumpus. First down, Bump. Who's a prospect in this year's draft that you fall more and more in love with the more film you watch? I hate this time of the year and I love it at the same time. Because I sit back, I speculate, I watch film, I break things down, and and people start to get more attractive as the days and hours go by. And the Hawks aren't going to draft this guy. I don't think they are. But Anthony Richardson, man. I'm, Isn't that always what happens? Right? That's what, how it goes down. I'm watching film on this dude, and I go, yeah, he's got a lot to work on. But he's 6'3", 236. Rushed for a 654 last year, nine touchdowns, three for 17, nine interceptions. He's got some big plays. He's got a 60-yard touchdown run, an 81-yard touchdown run, a 45-yard touchdown run. He has a 74-yard touchdown pass, a 78-yard touchdown pass. His athleticism is crazy. I saw him get outside the pocket, fake a throw, spin in the air, then keep running, make a guy miss and score a touchdown. Those are things that you just cannot teach. So I keep watching film on Anthony Richardson, but then I notice him throw a bunch of footballs in the dirt. I see him being laid on a couple of throws, but you see the arm strength. The knock on him, he beat one out of five ranked opponents that he played this year, including a loss to Mr. Will Levis, who has risen in the ranks right now. Only team, ranked team that they beat was Utah, and Utah threw that game away. I'm watching the Cam Rides throws an interception right on the goal line to lose the game. But I look at Anthony Richardson, and I see the talent. I see why teams are willing to gamble and take a risk on this guy because there's no other quarterback in college football that are doing the things that he can do mm-hmm. as far as athleticism and pure just ability. He's got to tighten some things up, but Anthony Richardson, man, you got me. You got me. Uh, obviously, it's mock draft season, and as we know, the drafts have to get spicier and spicier because you got to just think of new angles. Mm-hmm. Um, the Athletic has a new one out where the Seahawks trade from five to, uh, what, nine or so. Uh, and they have the Raiders taking Anthony Richardson at five. Would that be really early to you? Oh, man, it'd be early. But oh, excuse uh, me, seven. I got a, I got a, like a, a man crush on Richardson right now. <laughs> Today I'll take it. Ask me like next week sure, or something. Sure, sure. Second down. Headliners for the offseason. We've got Rogers, Carr, Jackson, Gino, Jimmy. Is there a possibility we see another name get into the mix? Yeah, I'm looking at Mr. Jameis Winston in New Orleans, right? He signed a two-year deal in 2022. If he's on the squad this year, he's got to hit him for about $12.5 million to be a backup. If they get rid of him post-June 1st, that'll cut mm-hmm. date. They'll save themselves about $15 million. Here's the thing about the Saints. They're about $30 million over the cap at this Ooh. point. They need to switch some things up. You got Ingram, the running back who's getting old. He's probably going to be gone. David Johnson is going to be gone. They might let Kamara go because of all the extra stuff that's going on with him. And then you have Michael Thomas. They are officially in rebuild mode over there. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm assuming that they do. They're in rebuild mode out there. Now, what do you do in rebuild mode? You try to trade guys. You let them go, whatever, to clear money and get assets. I look at Jameis Winston right now, and I see him as a quarterback who is best at backing up a young guy, a Sam Howell, a Kyle Trask over there in Tampa. You bring him into camp. You compete. You know those guys are going to play. But just in case things go wrong, you got Jameis Winston over there. He is this generation's Fitzpatrick. 
He will play and light you up for 400 yards and five touchdowns. If he plays too long, he's also going to turn the football over. Five times. Right? <laughs> he, he does just enough to keep you interested, to keep you in the game, but you know he's probably not the long-term answer. I'm looking at Jameis Winston, and I'm saying throw him into the mix as well. Now, he's that bottom tier, I think, with Jimmy Gino and, and Jameis. They can all be clumped together there. But I'm looking at the situation over there with the Saints, and I'm saying you guys got to make some moves. You're in rebuild mode. Yep. Get rid of Winston, and he could back up a young guy. God, that's such a great comparison because that's completely what it is. It's this uh, incredible vo- volatility for both Fitzpatrick and Jameis where it's they have the same potential to throw six touchdowns right. and then four interceptions. Mm-hmm. And it's like, which one are you going to get? Game. It, there's no normal <laughs> game with either of these guys. No. It's one of the, it's going to be horrendous or you're going to be like, is this guy the answer? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the two. Third down. An NFL team proposed a rule making roughing the passer reviewable. What was the league's response? The league said, look, man, we got this. We reviewed about aiding, roughing the passer uh, situations, and only three were questionable. I'm looking at the league and go, you guys are that good, huh? The refs are that good at their job that you're going to insult people and say, okay, only three were questionable. But then I want to give them some props at the same time because over the years, I've been on these zebras. You know I've been on these mm-hmm. referees, man. Over the years, there were 93 roughing the passers called in this, uh, this year. 2022, 154 were called. 2021, 127 revenue passes were called. And in 2020, 136 were called. So, yes, they might seem a bit arrogant when it comes to oh, only three were questionable. They're going to protect their referees for sure. But I will give the referees props in saying they've been limiting those calls a bit. And then I looked at Warren Sharp's, I believe, um, Instagram account, and he found six roughing the roughing the passer calls that were questionable. It's just their approach to whenever they're challenged with rules that make people not really like the organization mm-hmm. as a whole or the shield because they never just come out and say, you know, we could do better at something. It's always, nah, we're good. We got this. So I'm challenging them in that sense to where I doubt they're only three questionables. But I will give them props in saying over the years they've been calling it less and less. It's just crucial times. The one that sticks out to me benefited the Seahawks. Nick Bosa, yep. Geno Smith. Yep. That, that was wasn't a rough one. in the past. Recall. It was horrible. There's another one at Kansas City. I want to say it was on, uh, was it on Chris Jones? It wasn't in the Super Bowl, obviously. But there was there there have been some horrible calls this year. And you're right. They never come out and say, like, we, we made a mistake. It's, you know, people are human. Yeah. They always will find a way to defend it by, like, the letter of the law. Yeah. And you're like, okay, come on. Yep. You're stretching this. Interpretation. Fourth down. What is one of the best things the XFL's given you through two weeks of the season? Before I tell you the best thing, here's the worst thing. XFL, they cannot run the football. There's nobody effectively running <laughs> the football. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't get it. You would feel like running the football is a higher percentage play. But I guess when you have a bunch of mistakes going on in the back end, yeah. you're able to toss the ball around. But one of the best things I've seen in the XFL so far is just the mic'd up. I think I sent you guys yes. a, um, a clip of a guy in a huddle, and he's pretty much saying, shut the heck up. Let <laughs> me call this play. Edit. Yes, you, you can use your imagination. And then just hearing the offensive coordinators make the calls in crunch time situations, I've heard OCs making calls on these final drives. And I think it really puts it in perspective just how fast things have to happen in the communication. I've heard receivers get the wrong call, then they're lining up in the wrong spot. you got to call a timeout. I just like that it takes you – 
inside of the logistics of a play call, the logistics of a drive and the communication that goes down. So I love the play. It's not the greatest play, but I love the quarterback play. Guys are throwing the ball across the yard. They can't run the football to save their lives, but I like the inside. To also, there's a story, man. There was a young man for the, the Dragons, number five, the corner. His dad passed away that morning, and then he still played in that game and God. then did an interview about it. It's just stuff like that that makes these young men human and this the league in general is doing a great job with just the insight on stuff. Yeah, I hate the like weird hate that it gets because you're not watching a bunch of first team all pros. Yeah. It's like people just want an excuse to be like this is trash instead of like watch it or don't. It's like a reality show, right? Like you have it's free and you can watch <laughs> it or you can watch something else. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> Why watch it and complain? Easy. God. Uh, all right. You are listening to Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. Coming up, um, we talked about some pitch clock drama. How about some umpire drama? That's next. This is The Timeline with Bump and Stacy. Brought to you by 1-800-DUIOA. You are listening to Bump and Stacy. This is the timeline, reading you the top viral stories, trending stories, whatever it is you're going to see on your own timeline. You're going to be wondering why is Red Sox trending? Why is Conley trending? Why is Pitch Clock trending? Well, let's get to that with our first story. Saturday's Grapefruit League game between the Red Sox and Braves ended on an automatic strike call. Uh, this is the background you need very quickly here. Uh, it was two outs, bases loaded. Game is tied at 6-6 in the bottom of the ninth. Cal Conley's at bat. And now what? He's out. They called strike three. Wow! This is mayhem! Oh! Automatic strike three called with the bases loaded in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth. This is baseball in 2023. This is a 3-2 count. Cal started walking towards first because he thought that it was uh, called walk, right? Uh, Penalizing the pitcher. And uh, no, that's not actually the case. You are called for a violation for not getting set in time. All he can do is just laugh. It's spring training, so it's fine. You can just, you know, laugh at it. It's funny now. It's funny now. He's just laughing at it. Maybe it's like he really thought it was funny maybe it was from annoyance but it looked more like a are you kidding me yeah you gotta kind of laugh at that one right now and you are you're teaching old dogs new tricks at this point you know i have a new puppy in the house you know what he probably pees on the floor once or twice a day i ain't mad at you right now (laughs) give me about eight nine months when you are trained then it's gonna be a bit different this is baseball this is um and it's important that these umpires stick to it. They don't get influenced. Yeah. Um, you you lay the law down right now. So when you get into these high leverage situations and uh, during the regular season and playoffs, everyone knows what to expect. And there's a sense of urgency. You get into the play. You're getting ready. This shouldn't be a problem. I would say once we get closer to the all-star break, yeah. guys should have it figured out. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, about, like, you don't go easy just because it's spring training. And you're like, none of it matters. We're still learning. Like, this is when you go pretty hard. And yeah. you're like, no, we're going to call every single thing so that when the season starts, you've already seen what violations look like for hitters and pitchers. And you know exactly what to avoid. Great point. Um 
it's uh, not the only thing controversial. We know that pitch clock stuff was going to be the big controversy to start uh, spring training. Turns out that the real controversy is between an umpire and a manager. Next up in the timeline, controversial umpire C.B. Buckner refused to shake hands with Cardinals manager Ollie Marmel prior to a spring training game. Here's what you need to know. Uh, the two had a confrontation back in August after a disputed strike call. Uh, C.B. Buckner ejected Marmel and then Marmel went to him to argue and the two kind of went back and forth then on Saturday in this game against the Nats Marmol goes to uh, home plate for the exchange of lineup cards and Buckner refuses to shake his hand Marmol said the other umpires uh, including Angel Hernandez did shake his hand and then apologize for Buckner's refusal God, if Angel Hernandez is looking like the good That's guy. That's what I'm saying. This, Angel is like, hey, I'm real sorry about this situation. I apologize <laughs> for the behavior of my colleague. <laughs> uh, Marmel said it was zero class. Zero class is how he described it from Buckner. Man, you're going to compete and work with lots of people that you just don't like. Maybe you don't respect them, but... This is just how the game goes. This is what you do. I mean, what are you mm-hmm. teaching your you're a leader, right? What are you teaching your colleagues? What are you teaching people yeah. who want to be in your profession that, oh, you get into your feelings a little bit, you don't shake hands? I've shaken hands with plenty of people. I just don't rock with. Don't don't like how they do business, don't like how they work, but I just I just shake hands and, and we move we move along. That's from like seven year yeah, seven year old all the way up through my adulthood. So no, not a good look. You just shake hands and get it over with. I guess what's weird to me is C B Buckner is one of the most veteran umpires have you not had people and umpire or excuse me uh, managers or players get in your face and say horrible things like what is it that marmal did where you were is it marmal yeah marmal? Marmal. Uh, what is it that marmal did where you were like no this crossed a line must have been personal well that's what i'm saying Dug i'm like deep. i know that he's newer so maybe you're thinking like you know i'm establishing myself mm-hmm. as the authority figure here is the ump you need to pay attention to but like what could he possibly have said that is that much more disrespectful than any other time managers have gotten in fights with you after being ejected? Ums get really in their feelings. It's about ridiculous. The strike zone. Like, like if you question their strike zone, that's like the worst possible thing you could say to an umpire, which is stupid because it's like, well, that's what, what you're if most it's a bad judged strike by. Zone? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you're. We now have the technology to see whether or not that was a strike or a ball. Like, yeah, it's not just simply your gut feel. It's like, no, you can see the the strike zone and how bad this guy is. Well, and I'm sorry, but like everyone's job allows for criticism. Our job allows for criticism. We see it all day on a text line in front of our face. Every like, can you day. imagine if every single thing made you mad and you were like, how dare you? Or do you just say like, well, that's the strike zone today. That's how I'm working it. Deal with it. Yeah. To refuse to ha- handshake is Come silly. I-, I saw a great exchange on the Twitter the other day. Curtis, you probably remembered it was the the skipper for the Mets back in the day. I want to say maybe early nineties, mid nineties, and um, an umpire, and he's talking to him. He's like Tony. I don't know his name's Tony now. Tony, relax. Tony, relax. You know. And then the the skippers is going at him, cursing at him, yada yada yada. And the ump is just taking it like, all right, are you done now? Are you done now? And in that moment, I go, I wish more zebras and umpires had the composure of this guy mm-hmm. because these dudes are competing. When yeah. you compete, you're going to say and do things that you normally wouldn't do on a regular basis. Yep. So just the uh, the grace that he gave them in that moment was huge. But, you know, humans, we mess up. Next story here in the timeline. It's like a unicorn. Boston Bruins goalie Linus Olmark became the ninth goalie in NHL history to shoot and score a goal in a game. Passer tips. Oh, here we go. Olmark to the empty net. 
He scores! Win is over for Boston Nolan. Had time, had a lane, and he's being mobbed by his teammates after one of the rare occurrences in the sport of hockey. Now, you heard the play-by-play voice say it, but Olmark immediately swarmed by teammates who are losing their minds. And it was a really cool goal, too. I didn't realize that was that rare. I, I did not knew realize it was rare, that. but did not realize it was like ninth ever NHL yeah, history. Yeah, that I would have said, oh, maybe 20, 25 guys right. or something like that. Yeah, that's that's got to be awesome, man, to experience that and celebrate with your boys. Yeah, that's good, man. Goalies don't score goals. So that's what I'm saying. There have been more perfect games than there have been goalies scoring goals. That's crazy. You Baseball's put it like been that. around for a long time. Like but. NHL's yeah. been around for over 100 years, too. But not with as many teams. True. They had six for like the first yeah. 50 years of existence. Yeah. But you know we're up to 32 now, so they've had plenty of opportunities for this, but... Yeah, I mean, plenty of slacking are, goalies. Goalies here are wearing hearing. so much padding. <laughs> like, how do you how do you generate enough right. momentum from that far away? Too. What I want to see is removing the goalie, but then putting the goalie in as your sixth defender. He's just <laughs> skating sixth, around me, out sixth, there yeah, in his pads, <laughs> going all slow. Oh God! Uh, no, really, really cool moment here. Um, let's see. Let's uh, get to our final story. I'll try to rush through this one. The Milwaukee Bucks are being sold to Cleveland Browns owners Jimmy and D Haslam for three point. $5 billion. Bump, this is the third highest price for an American pro sports franchise. The Broncos at $4.6 billion were the most. Suns at $4 billion. What'd you say, Curtis? Milwaukee. $3.5 billion in right? Milwaukee? Yeah. Exactly. What's going on? This What's that in, in Milwaukee dollars? Yeah, that's like $8 billion. <laughs> that's like at least. This <laughs> is amazing. This just rises... This just raises the price tag for any sort of NBA expansion fee. Like, if Seattle wants to get back in the game... We're looking at what five billion now. I can think of a billionaire in Seattle who can uh, look at a, that as pocket change. There are a change. few so billionaires, a few billionaires in, in Seattle town, yeah. who I think would uh, who I think would be just fine with that cost. But again, NBA, you want that money? <laughs> you want that Seattle billionaire money? Come on now. I think you know what to do. If you miss any part of the show, make sure you're subscribed to the Bump and Stacy podcast. The latest Seattle sports news is available right on your phone every single weekday, wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Google Play, Apple. Please rate, review, subscribe. We would really, really appreciate it. It means a ton to us. You are listening to Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. Um, Bruce Feldman is going to join us at noon. Um, there is a uh, Mariners game happening as well. That's going to be tape delayed. We'll give you any updates, like if there are any big injury things you guys need to know. Uh, otherwise, we're talking college football and draft at noon with Bruce Feldman. We're going to preview it a little bit. Our dream draft scenario for the Seahawks. That's next. Bumpin' Stacy, Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On Seattle Sports. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Rost. Bruce Feldman, college football writer for The Athletic, is going to join us in 15 minutes. We're going to ask him about his feature on Jalen Carter. And then uh, maybe we'll get some Pac-12 stuff in there. Um, some other stuff about the Combine, Pro Days, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, Seahawks looking at pick number five overall. Highest pick under Pete and John. Plenty to preview when it comes to the NFL Draft. That coming your way in less than 15 minutes right now, though. Our dream draft scenarios for the Seahawks. Um, Bump, you and I did little like mock drafts where we looked at some potential uh, selections. Mine was not 
sincere. I took a kicker first <laughs> overall um, and uh, an offensive tackle second. Mm-hmm. So obviously the Seahawks should not move in that direction. I don't think John Schneider should take my advice. However, you had some really good picks. So let's talk about kind of like dream scenarios, best case scenarios for the Seahawks. You could go specific players, especially mm-hmm. if like number five overall. Uh, otherwise, you can go like position groups, sides of the ball, whatever. Let's start uh, now. <laughs> let's with, with, let's and you're on the clock. And we're on. Number five overall. What are you doing? Number five. Ideally, Jalen Carter or Will Anderson. Again. But we just don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Chicago sounds like they might be moving their yes. number one pick. Obviously, whoever that number one pick is is going to pick Bryce. Har- I always want to say Bryce Harper. I know. Bryce Young. Sometimes I just let you do it. I know. I don't. I don't <laughs> like that. You correct me when I say Bryce Harper. <laughs> Bryce Young or. Um, and C.J. Stroud are going to be like number one, number two, number yeah, three, yeah. or whatever. Anyway, Jalen Carter's probably not going to get to us. Will Anderson's not going to get to us. So I think you go Tyree Wilson or you go uh, Miles Murphy. Mm-hmm. After that, my focus with the number 20 pick will be a uh, either a defensive lineman again or you go center. I like Brian Breesy. I think you highlighted him a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. You mentioned him, the kid out of Clemson. Then after that, I'm looking at a center, the kid John Michael Schmitz out of Minnesota. Now, th- these were my I did four picks in this uh, draft simulator. I went Tyree Wilson at number five, went Brian Breesy at number 20, and then I went John Michael Schmitz at 37, and then go Cougs. I went Deion Henley at number 51 in the second round. So I got for pick one A. This is according to PFF. Yeah, I got an A grade, A grade, D grade with Michael uh, John Michael Schmitz, and then a B plus with Deion Henley. And then I just did another one, and at the eighty three pick, I just threw a quarterback in there to see what would happen. Okay, so I was going to ask, can we stick on that for a minute? Because yeah. I do want to ask you about the first one where you were like, "Hey, here are the guys I really like." Specifically, when it comes to a center, mm-hmm. not a lo- not a position enough people are talking about, but one that they badly need. Uh, but when it comes to quarterback, so your original version didn't have one. Is there a world where they keep Geno, maybe even bring back Drew, and you'd want to see them draft a quarterback? Yeah. I think if someone you like later is there. I like um, – I keep jacking his name up too, Jake Hainer. 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 Right. Hainer out of Fresno State. Yes, um, If Jake is available, he's like the why not. He's like the Alex Magoo. Remember Alex Magoo was here mm-hmm. a few years back, and he had a good preseason and ended up going somewhere else. But he's a he's a why not type of dude. What if he does something to put pressure on Drew Locke, and now you have a tough decision to make, which is great. If you do have a tough decision to make, you got a younger guy for cheaper as well, because now you got to sign Drew Locke um, to an extension or re-sign him this year. So, no, that's – the only place I would be okay with them drafting the quarterback early, the earliest I would go, would go round three, pick number 83, if someone is there that you like. And then if they don't have Geno, obviously you're comfortable with them. You you have to do it. If you go, if Geno's not there. You got to do it. You got to go five. You got to go get you one. You got to do it. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, let's get back to kind of your areas of focus. Defense, number one. Obviously, in in all of your mocks and all the guys you're looking at, you go defense first and foremost for very obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think people are kind of overlooking the need uh, when it comes to the interior of the offensive line? Yeah, I think you are. Um, Austin Blythe, good dude. Love that guy. Great family man. For that's, sure. That's the worst part about our job is critiquing dudes that you genuinely like. I saw like. you interview Austin Blythe with his family. Man, with you his horrible fam. person. You're a horrible person. <laughs> but, you know, he just got pushed around a bit. 
and we don't know how healthy he was. If there's anyone who fights through injuries, it's offensive linemen. They're going to have harnesses everywhere. Yep. They're going to be taped up everywhere. Toes. Yeah, They're just going to fight through it. Hands all crippled and stuff. But I think, <laughs> again, you need someone to compete. And Austin Blythe is a free agent now. Um, so why not bring someone? If you don't sign Austin Blythe, you bring in a young guy to compete at that spot. That interior offensive line is crucial. You look at the center spot. You look at Gabe Jackson. He wasn't extremely healthy this year. That's why you do sign Phil Haynes because he showed that he could fill in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now now it's time to protect. It's all about the big boys. So if with that 37th pick, I'm looking at a center or a guard. For when sure. do skill position players come into play? After the first three. But, but here's what's wild, because as you know, which is why I ask you, there have been a couple mocks that have Seattle with a wide receiver at 20. Yeah. Which is like, I get it. I just don't think it is a top three priority. I would pit inside linebacker before wide receiver. Yeah, especially the way that... Seattle runs their offense. Shane Waldron runs their offense. Two guys on the outside going over a thousand yards. Your tight ends are your number three receivers. I could see that if they had, if they were in a system where they had two guys over a thousand yards, and you had that number three receiver getting around six hundred, maybe seven hundred sure. yards, then you're like, okay. There's high usage at that spot. We need a guy who can go right now. I think because there's not a high usage at that spot, you can find a guy later. Then we saw um, Jigba from Ohio State mm-hmm. uh, drafted at number 20 in one of these mock drafts, which I wouldn't mind if they got him. But I'm thinking that's not a necessity. That's yeah. not a, a need right now. What you need to do is protect Gino. What you need to do is bring in a guy at the center spot who can be your Max Unger for the next few years, hopefully, if yes. you strike goal like that. So, um, no, I think skill positions – if there's any group that I'm least concerned about with this team on offense and on defense, it's the skill positions. Now, you switch it up, that linebacker spot as well. Now we're thinking Bobby, if yes, we can, and yeah. then that's why I drafted Dayon Henley at number uh, 51 of this draft because you do have to address that. Well, it's kind of an extension of the conversation. Now, I know that a rookie is playing on a rookie deal. You're not paying him big money, but you're still investing right. with a lot of draft capital in that pick once again. And what have we been talking about for the last several weeks even, but certainly the last several shows, has been, hey, where's the money invested for Seattle? Two wide receivers, two safeties. I mean, fantastic, great. They're great players, but, like, you've got to invest in that line. Like, you can see direct correlations between investments in in the line, whether it's by great picks or free agents, and successful teams. And, And Seattle's kind of trailing some of the better teams in the league there. So, completely agree. Love those picks. Uh, let's see uh, what the odds are that, you know, like a prestigious elite, uh, once in a lifetime generation is available at five. Uh, we know that um, Tyree Wilson, who's been widely mocked to Seattle, is a fantastic player. We know that, um, you know, any of the quarterbacks could be game changers for Seattle. But Bruce Feldman, who's a college football reporter for The Athletic, has looked closely at one of the top defensive linemen in this draft. What are the odds? What are the odds that player is there for the Seahawks? That's next.